Welcome to our class podcast for American Writers One, Beginnings to 1865. I'm Dr. Carrie Tippin, your instructor and host. Today, we're discussing the poetry of Edward Taylor, another Puritan poet. Uh, so let's meet the panel today. Uh, so introduce yourself with your name, your major, and something interesting on your desk. Elsa, why don't you go first? All right. Hi, I'm Elsa. I'm a creative writing major, and something interesting on my desk is this potion bottle of origami stars. Oh, that's cute. Did you make all the stars? Yeah, I did. That's fun. I, I learned to make origami stars during a snow day one year. Like, we were all snowed in, and uh, I sat around making origami stars instead of writing my dissertation. That's fun. <laughs> all right, Hannah, introduce yourself. Hey, cool. I'm Hannah. I'm an English major, and uh, interesting things on my desk include, um, you know those pop vinyl things you can get? Yes. I have an Edgar Allan Poe. Cute. Um, but I like Poe because I'm an English major, and also I love horror. Yes. So he's here with me. Oh, that's wonderful. That's good. I wrote this question, but I didn't really think of anything, but I have this dry erase marker that is clickable. <laughs> it makes a very cool sound and I really enjoy using it. <laughs> is that interesting? I don't know. Cool. Well, good to meet you all again and let's get going. So our poems today, we had, there were several in our anthology, but I picked these three. Um, so maybe we could start with the joy of church fellowship rightly attended. Hannah, describe that poem for us. Sure. So this poem, uh, it took me a few reads actually to kind of understand it, mm -hmm. but from what I'm getting at, it is, um, about, uh, what the Puritans called the saints. So people who were, I guess, I don't when I think of saints, I think of like the big guys from the Bible, right? Um, right. But for them, the saints were just, I guess, the people who attended church, and they were like the chosen ones, right? Right. Um, and this is about these people and their joy, I guess, in getting across to heaven and how they followed Jesus that way. There's also a part at the very end where it says a few like fell off the chariot but still got into heaven they just weren't guided by Jesus or they like, had a problem but then they fixed it and got back on or something like I said it took me a few reads to understand it and like I have the gist of it but I probably couldn't really tell you in order what happened <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an extended metaphor, right? And so he's talking about going to heaven, but the metaphor is that there's a, a coach and all of the people going to heaven are in it and there's a road. And then I think you're right. I got a little confused towards the end too um, about these travelers afoot. And I think it's, it's a syntax sentence problem that I can't figure out really quickly, uh, but some few not in, so, so some people are not in the coach. And some whose time and place block up the coach's way do go as travelers as on foot. So there are people outside of the church, outside of the coach, who get in the way and slow things down. 
Uh, but, but the last part I think is confusing. So do trace the road that gives them right there too, while in this coach they sweetly sing as they to glory ride therein. Gives them right there too. I don't know what that part means. Elsa, do you have any idea? <laughs> um, this uh, podcast will be a little bit of a challenge for me because this isn't the kind of language that I'm used to like reading and interpreting. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to be a fun challenge. <laughs> yeah, I think there, there's something there about the, like they have the right to the road. And I think your reading of it, Hannah, is interesting, right? They may get to heaven anyway, but they're not going to be with us. Right. Yeah. I, that's what's going on there, but I'm not positive. And so do I also don't know, like, the they. Yes. I don't know which they is being described. Is that the saints or is it the people blocking the road? The travelers afoot. That's a good question. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> so as far as clarifying questions go, we didn't answer it. Uh, but I get the gist of the rest of it, right? That they're sort of inside and outside, right? Inside the church, inside the saints going to heaven and then outside other people and they sometimes get in the way and they sometimes don't but they also get on the road but the road is still there and i think that's interesting yeah okay i picked huss swiffery the second one um because i love it uh and it's similarly a, a conceit right so it's one poem one metaphor and it sort of keeps building on it um, and it's a prayer directly to God, asking him to make the speaker a spinning wheel. Um, and so that spinning wheel, kind of like, um, I always think of Sleeping Beauty, the spinning wheel <laughs> of like turning um, fabric or yarn, making yarn out of uh, fibers or whatever. Uh, and so the whole paragraph or the whole poem is built on like parts of that spinning wheel. So make me uh, the distaff, make me the spool, make me the yarn, make me the loom, knit me into twine, right? So kind of all of those different parts of fabric making, um, he's sort of attaching to specific symbols, um, which I think is really kind of pretty. And I'm, I'm always fascinated by the fact that it's such a domestic item that he chooses to compare himself to and i don't know if he is then if it's one of those speaker things where he's speaking as if he were perhaps a woman using that item and kind of imagining what her monologue would be or if he's really speaking for himself and i think it might be a little too convenient to only think of it that he only had one point of view right I'm not sure. Any questions about that one or things to clarify there? No, not on this one. I this was... one's easier. Yeah. <laughs> in almost every way. Okay, and then Elsa, you were interested in a fig for the Odette. Yes. Um, and something to note before any uh, like further discussion of the poem is that a fig is not referring to like a fruit. It's referring to something that is small, valueless, or uh, contemptible. Yeah. Um, and so it's not, here's a fruit for you. It's, here's nothing for you. Yeah, yeah. Almost like a, like a flying F, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and it's... Uh, Mostly uh, seems to be talking about like uh, how all of these 
things uh, uh, like kind of horrifying things will happen um, but that's okay because uh, I have the grace of God and death is fine yeah 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 there's some really good lines in there like uh, like at the very beginning uh the king of terrors with that ghastly eyes and butter teeth seems pretty great <laughs> some great lines about what death is like yeah cool any questions about that one difficult sentences or so many footnotes in this poem from our editors thank goodness there's a lot of unusual words in there uh, that are hard to kind of figure out. You have more questions about some specific lines in a minute, Elsa. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. 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 All right. Let's go on then. Let's start there then, Elsa. Talk about the, the your discussion question, the thing that you wanted to bring to the conversation. Um, so one of the footnotes actually tells us that some of the lines were changed in between publications of the poem. Um, so one of the versions has um, my body, my vile harlot, it's thy mess, laboring to drown me into sin, disguise, by eating and drinking such evil joys, though grace preserved me that I have uh, surprised nor tumbled into such grave. Um, and then another version of it is my harlot body maketh thou thy mess, that often snared me with its trumpets, guide guide of me to, and drinks dainty sensu uh, sensualities, yet grace and heirs suffer me to turn aside as sinners oft fall in and do abide. Um, and like, what was interesting to me about that is that poetry is usually so particular in its word choice. And so like, just the fact that there was a change in publications at all uh, feels like something that should be drawn attention to. Um, and like, what effect does this change have? That is a good question. I think maybe, first of all, tell me what those two sentences mean. <laughs> um, it's basically uh, just like um, offering uh, his body to the Lord. Um, and he is tempted by sin, but he won't fall to it. Yeah. And is that sort of the meaning you get out of both versions? To an extent, um, yeah. the version that uh, was published uh, in the first version, um, which uh, is the um, second version that I read, to mm -hmm. me makes it clearer, but it is, but you are able to get it from both. Yeah. It's interesting to me that the, the edited out version <laughs> uses strumpets and sensuality uh, that maybe is more specific, but also like sensuality, I think is a, a more generic word in some ways, uh, maybe more provocative is the word I'm thinking of, right? That the edited version above is a little clear, a little less like hot button words. I feel like strumpets and sensualities would be hot button words. Do you think? I can definitely see that, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's also a difference in active and passive verb constructions. <laughs> so my body is thy mess is one version. And the other one is make my body thy mess, right? There's like a, an imperative in the second one 
or the the first one <laughs> the older version let's do older and newer that will be help, more helpful okay so the older version has uh that active verb you make it the mess uh and then there's a, the other difference i noticed too is the grace preserved me in the new one in the other one the older one it says yet grace never suffered me so like grace never asked me to turn aside and that's very different from grace preserved me from turning aside does that make sense yeah it's different that's different what what kind of significance do you put on an elsa um with the uh grace preserved me it's kind of like an act of grace yeah. um, whereas grace uh, never suffered me to turn aside is uh that more of a passive action of grace where it's just like nothing that happened was enough for grace to warrant action yeah yeah and that the the newer version then kind of gives more agency to grace mm -hmm. yeah i agree I agree. Hannah, what do you think about the idea of editing in these two versions? Um, as a whole, I don't think it really changed much of the poem. Yeah. However, when you really break it down sentence by sentence, um, I think Elsa kind of covered most of it um, in that it does feel, feel more provocative in mm -hmm. the original. Uh, so much as I know you mentioned the strumpets and sensuality mm -hmm. the newer edited version of it with it is it's very more like an actionable one yeah. I don't know yeah so I think you guys kind of covered all of my thoughts on it yeah I'm just interested in the act of editing at all, right? Yeah. And the fact that he would write this poem, and they're both manuscripts, so I'll bring this up later again, uh, but none of these poems are published in his lifetime, and he didn't really want them to be published, but he is copying them out in two different places on two different pieces of paper, fully written out, <laughs> and then here's an edited version. And I just, I wonder if you have any sense of what that means as a creative writer, and I know, I think both of you have some creative writing experience, am I right? What, it, what kind of a significance do you attach to that action of, of copying them out? I've definitely gone back uh, to poems that I wrote, especially like middle school when you're really oh, angry. Um, and I've like reread them and noticed just how angsty it really was. And then I'll like rewrite it. Yeah. Um, fix it so it feels more mature, I guess. Mm. Best way to put that. But that's, that's definitely a age thing for me there where I look at things that I thought were so good in middle school. And then I learned more throughout high school in my first few years of college. Uh, this is only my second year in college. I don't know why I said it like that. But, um, <laughs> like everything that I've learned since then and I reapply it and I, I'll like almost rewrite the poem but keep what I wanted to say there so it yeah. feels less, I guess, um, 
I don't know the word I want to use for this, but like less youthful, more mature or whatever. Sure. I wonder I if that's what's happening here too, right? The editing yeah. out of those big hot button words that are really provocative and instead adding like more nuance or, or, or really maybe changing what he thinks Grace is or Grace does and sort of making that change change. I just think it's interesting that he's working on it. He's not a poet, like that's not his job. That's not his income. Uh, our head note lets us know it's part of like a devotional activity. And yet he's really working on these, like as a poet, right? I think that's really pretty fascinating. That's cool. Anything else about the poem that you wanna talk about before we, well, let's go on. Let's go to Hannah's question and then we can talk more specifically. Uh, Hannah, you wanted to talk about death. <laughs> um so both a fig for thee o death and uh the church fellowship one felt very much like they're like hey death and uh how we feel about it yeah so one of my favorite poems is because i could not stop for death he kindly yes. stopped for me uh by emily dickinson yes we'll read yeah. that one later Yes. Okay. So I'm pretty sure I signed up for that. Good. <laughs> um, Taylor's relationship here with how he feels about death and dying feels very similar to how Dickinson wrote yeah. about it, wherein it's not really a scary thing. I mean, it is like a scary thing in A Fig for the O Death and how it's thou king of terrors with butter teeth and a grisly hide and these talons and how it's like attacking these in hell or whatever yeah however he's very much my relationship with god is saving me i don't have to be afraid of this mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um in the church fellowship it's the saints rising to heaven they're singing they're joyful because they're rising to heaven. So it's very much a, we really shouldn't be afraid to die as long as we have our connection with God. As long as we're godly people on earth, we'll be with God in death. And there's nothing to be afraid of when you're with God in death as according to his poems. Yeah, I think that's a really good summary of that, right? That there, there's not that fear. That we didn't read um, Upon Wedlock and Death of Children, but um, I think that's similar. <laughs> Did it remind you of Anne Bradstreet's kind of attitudes, Hannah? Yeah, actually, a lot, um, especially with the one with, like, Upon the Burning of My House or whatever it was called, yeah. I can't remember already. Uh, but even in that one, it was, you know, at least when I die, I have this amazing place in heaven with my, like, by God. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just being religious, I think, was a way especially then to make people less afraid of this unknown thing that happens after you die yeah i've always felt that way being raised in religious household mm -hmm. um but i'm it's also i don't know i'm kind of like that it happens to everyone so why bother being afraid of it <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I was interested in how, like, a fig for thief, O death, especially, there's a real just distaste for, like, the body 
and yeah. bodily things, right? My body, let's see if I can kind of pull on a few. Um, well, like basically my body is your, like your mess. Like my body is a meal for you. Eat my stupid body. It's disgusting. Uh, it's like a tea, a crack, a, a nut that can be cracked. Am I right? Right? The. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm not doing any good of skimming and scanning this today, but basically like it's not worth anything. The body itself is evil. The body itself is, um, worm food. <laughs> the body itself is, is not worth trying to save, which I think is, is kind of an interesting, it, it makes this dichotomy, right? Of like soul and body and that soul is important and body is not and that soul is eternal and body is not. And I wondered if you have a sense of maybe where, where and why that might be the case. Where does that idea come from that maybe the body is something to distrust? He's also afraid of eating and drinking, right? Yeah. I, so food is like my jam. That's my, <laughs> my scholarly interest. So when he talks about like being eaten by death, um, and that eating and drinking could be sin, right? Eating and drinking is a temptation. That is where all of my little, all my things went off, all my alarms. So what do you think about that? I would have to guess mm -hmm. that it going with like the original sin and how there's the belief that we're all born with this original sin. Yeah. Um, and that was all, you know, Eve's temptation, um, how she ate at this fruit, and now everyone is damned for the rest of eternity or however long, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and how everything, and then I can't remember when because most of my history knowledge begins with the renaissance <laughs> i know for a time there was just religiously anyway you're not supposed to give into any temptation at all like no overindulgence and that's like the what the seven original sin or not yeah original, yeah, yeah. Least in, like no overeating no um sex no wrath you know don't try to ever get your revenge don't pay too much attention to yourself like all this stuff and uh it still sort of happens even today where you know you get people it's always a thing that people attack women about too mostly you know i'm like i'm kind of a lipstick person i love makeup yeah i've gotten people like absolute random strangers telling me that like I'm wearing too much glitter on my face I'm like it's just my eyelids they're like you're going to hell for this I'm like I don't care you know um because I think it's kind of stupid for them like these sure. random strangers to try to condemn me to hell for wearing like dark lipstick yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also this is like it's not new for people to be saying that yeah agreed and I think maybe it does have something to do with like this whole original sin or whatever yeah but you can see it here in a fig for the death where he's so afraid to give into any sense of temptation 
Yeah, and I think even in contemporary circles, when we talk about someone as having Puritan values or being a Puritan, often what we really mean by that is this sort of strict denial, right? The uh, strict, they don't have birthdays. Puritans don't celebrate birthdays. I don't know, you know, or like most holidays because holidays are like too, too much, right? And your birthday, like, don't be happy about your birthday. You didn't do anything. Like there's nothing to celebrate there, uh, being alive. And they're like, their Thanksgiving days were fasting days rather than like feasting days. So, I mean, when we think about Puritans, we often think about it in terms of that restriction and the, the sort of very strict, you know, moderation. And I think we see evidence of that in these poems. Think about the huswifery metaphor, right? When he asks to be a spinning wheel, some of the things he wants to be done to him are like, uh, let's see, make my affections thy flyers, so the little part that moves here, make my soul thy holy spool to be, my conversation to be thy reel, and reel the yarn thereon spun of thy wheel. So just like all parts of me should be uh, from God, right? And if all of the parts of me are from God, then there can't be any room for anything else. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's all very, I think, beautiful and trying hard to, to make it a pleasant thing. I don't think it's like, I don't, I get a sense of joy from all of these poems, even yeah. though the fig for the death is, is a little bit horrific at the end of it. He's sort of like, boldly standing in front of death and saying like fuck off death like we literally don't care um and then even in huswifery he's asking to be made into this spinning wheel and and you know sort of perfect me in every way but it's for beauty there's a, an evident you know an emphasis on beauty make me beautiful and make the things that i do beautiful and peaceful and um you know affectionate and with conscience right and then the joy of church fellowship is about people literally singing while they die that's <laughs> there's a lot of joy in there too so i think it's it's interesting that we we often think about puritans as being so deeply restricted and restrictive and that evidence is there but i don't know that we often think of them as particularly joyful or joyous what do you think about that is that kind of your sense as well So I listen to a podcast called Schmanners, which is um, yeah. about etiquette and the history of why we have uh, these etiquettes and mannerly things. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they discuss fairly often is like, basically, almost all of our traditions nowadays come from either uh, the Victorian era or potentially uh, from Puritans. And there's a whole episode on how Puritans tried to ban Christmas. And so yeah. that's kind of more of what my reference point for Puritans are, um, is stories like that. Yeah. Um, not necessarily singing while they die. <laughs> yes, witch hunting, canceling Christmas. Uh, these are the like Puritan. <laughs> ethics I think that we get right work really hard don't care about any of your bodily possessions uh, an anti-materialist kind of point of view and then die and then die gratefully um, that's that's not I don't think that's enough I don't think that's quite everything it doesn't cover it all okay cool any other things you want to talk about about the poems in particular I got a couple more questions if you don't 
cool. Any good lines that stood out to you? I mean, I really liked in A Pig for Leo Death when he was describing death in the first like five lines. Yeah. But that's also because I'm kind of a horror nerd and I'm yeah. like, that is terrifying and I love it. Yeah. I wondered if you saw anything about like the sinners in the hands of an angry God in this metaphor of the trap door of hell that on and sin impenitently trip the downfall art of the infernal pit. Uh, that sort of made me think of like standing over a trap door of hell and, and any yeah. minute I will fall into it. That yeah. sounded a little bit like Edward, again. Jonathan Edwards. Yeah. Okay, so one of the things I'm interested in is, again, that none of Edward Taylor's poems were published. And so they come to us, um, he, di he dies in 1729, is that right? Yeah, he dies in 1729, and uh, his, he does not want his poems to be published. He tells his descendants uh, not to share them. Can you guess why he would want that to happen? Like, why not publish either in life or after death? Can you guess? I know poems can be a very personal thing. Yeah. Um, I personally want to one day publish my poetry, so I don't really see why he wouldn't want his to be published. But that's again because I'm looking at it from my own perspective. Sure. Uh, yeah, Elsa, what do you think? Oh, yeah. I'm kind of in the same boat, but also I get where he's coming from, because when I write poems, they're either for myself or to show other people. There's very few poems, they do exist, but there's few of them where it's both for myself mm -hmm. and with the intent to show other people. Yeah, that makes sense to me too, right? And we learned from the head note that he's a, he's a minister, he's a Puritan minister. And I wonder if his parishioners, I don't know if they call them parishioners, his churchgoers, his flock, um, would they have appreciated his poetry as, as, a, as a proper activity for a, a, a pastor or whatever? I don't know, maybe they wouldn't, right? Maybe, maybe or, or sort of like how Anne Bradstreet had to have that, that disclaimer at the beginning of her saying like, she was still a good woman and she absolutely did all of her chores. I wonder if his would need a similar kind of thing. Like he was a preacher, he didn't care about fame, he's not doing this to make money because that would be even worse. Um, he's just very humble and here are these poems anyway. It might be harder for him to pull off that act. Right, that is. Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. Um, so my next question, they describe him as a major colonial poet. And I wondered what you thought about that since as someone who was not published in the colonies or read beyond his kind of small group, is he a colonial poet? Is he, what kind of, how do we reckon with his, I guess his reputation? What do you think we should do with it? I don't, I ask these questions a lot. <laughs> It's kind of making me think back to uh, last semester in Women Writers, where it's just like, does being published mean that you are a writer or is merely the act of writing enough? Yes, it Elsa. Yeah. kind of makes me think of that. Yeah. And so how do, what do you think? Do you think he's a writer just because he wrote? 
I think he is um, because he did write these and he clearly put thought into it, editing at least one poem enough to make a relatively major change in it. Well, major, minor. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, The question would be, um, a major colonial poet? I'm not sure if I agree with major because these were published after his lifetime. He wasn't read much then. Mm -hmm. So like... Does he count as a major poet? Yeah, this is where I kind of introduced into the class the idea of a a mirror and a prism. (laughs) And a mirror is the kind of person who reflects their time. Um, And and I think Taylor is a good example of that. And my dogs are going crazy. Uh, I think it's mail time at my house. (laughs) So a mirror, you hold it up and it kind of reflects the time that you're there. But a prism can sort of like have an influential effect. And I think at the moment, Taylor is a mirror, a very good mirror, a good representation of uh, Puritan thought, a good representation of um, kind of the way that uh, early Americans are are processing texts that they get from Europe, right? I think there's a lot that he can tell us about that, but he doesn't have an effect on on poetry afterwards uh, until 1939 is when the first edition of his poems are released and so there's not a chance for him to influence other poets and kind of be a part of that so i don't know if that discounts him or makes him not worth studying i don't think that's the case but i do think it's interesting that you know i think we have to account for that part of his reputation is that we we english professors made him a major colonial poet right uh and i'm always interested in that as future educators and current educators what's our job in kind of establishing the reputation of writers I don't know, do you have any reactions to that mirror prism thing? Which do you think you'd rather read about in literature classes? People who have major influence or people who represent their time? I think it's probably good to have a mix. Yeah. Um, where like too much of a prism will in like affect how you see that um, era, but too much of a mirror will not allow you to like see, oh, that's how it changed and evolved. Yeah. Yeah, Hannah, any thoughts? I feel the same way, yeah. Mm. I think it's important just to know which one you're looking at, right? Before you kind of make any judgments, uh, identify, is this someone who is making a major influence in their time, like Anne Bradstreet, right? Getting published and being the first and kind of having that influence. Uh, Whereas Taylor, maybe writing for himself, maybe having that small circle of people that he's sharing work with, but in general, you know, being a mirror to his time. And and I think you're right, both are helpful um, and both are important. Cool, okay. We still have plenty of time, but I think I will kind of lead us to the last bit here. Uh, So our editors of the anthology describe Taylor's work as illuminating the intellectual and spiritual passion of Puritanism in New England. And I wonder if you had any thoughts about that, the intellectual part. Do you get any sense of, uh, of like the intellectual philosophy of Puritanism from these poems? 
or is there something about the act of writing poems that might be intellectual? What do you think about that? I know, that's a good question. I, I remember the first time I studied Shakespeare in school mm -hmm. and we were told that people would get together and just speak in um, like a very poetic way and they would try to one-up each other by speaking as if they were reading poetry. Okay, interesting. <laughs> and I know like the Elizabethan times versus, um, I don't even know what to call, <laughs> what we called this. Um, this would be the 18th century. After the Victorian times, the but this, but it's the Georgian or Gregorian. Oh God, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, <laughs> it's pre-Victoria for sure. Yeah. Uh, we're like between those, so yeah. I don't know how influential poetry really would be then. Mm. Okay, so we do know that he liked the 17th century British poets, the metaphysical poets, like John Donne. Um, and I love John Donne. He also does the same thing with the Met. I'm making this motion with my hands. Um, he has a poem called the um, A Compass. Yeah, I don't know what the title of the poem is anymore, but he, he, it's one of those conceits. It's a, a metaphor and he's describing two people who love each other as like a compass. And by that, I mean like the, the thing that draws a circle. That's why I made this hand motion. Um, so the thing that draws a circle and he's like, you're the point in the middle and I'm the pencil. And no matter how far I move away from you, we're still connected and we still make this circle. And it's a very beautiful love poem. Um, and it reminds me a lot of Huswifery, right? In that there's a, a single metaphor in the center and he's sort of using it to make a one-to-one -one comparison throughout. So I don't know if that helps kind of direct your thoughts, Hannah, but definitely he's a reader of 17th century poetry. Yeah. Um... I just, it's, like, it does feel like an intellectual thing, poetry, yeah. event. I mean, just having time to write or being, even being able to write. Um, yeah. I guess that says a lot because there were still people who didn't have the ability or the time to learn how to be totally. literate. Totally. Yeah. Elsa, any thoughts on that sort of Puritan intellectual thought? My first thought is, I apologize if you can hear my roommate having voice lessons at the moment. <laughs> um, and uh, my second thought is um, that definitely, like, um, the fact that he can write poems and, like, has the time to definitely, like, shows, um, like, a sense of, like, intellectual and privilege that he can yeah um, so yeah 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 and by this time you know the the colonies are, are pretty well established and if i'm remembering right he goes to cambridge he's sort of born in england and then arrives in as a, a, a puritan minister he goes to harvard 
so Harvard exists, <laughs> right? Um, we, uh, Edwards went to Yale, so Yale exists. So we have these sort of higher learning establishments and uh, people are you know, able to be a part of them and then kind of participate. And I think he's meditating on what does, what is our theology, right? What is the philosophy of a Puritan and how can I represent it in a way that uh, like m makes it beautiful? And I think that's really, really kind of interesting. Cool. Okay, great. Uh, maybe in our last minute, do you want to say anything more about kind of the connections between uh, Edward Taylor and Anne Bradstreet as our two kind of Puritan poets? They're separated by quite a bit of time, but I wonder if you notice anything similar about them. I think I already covered what I found similar. Yeah, that sort of anti-materialist. Yeah. Feelings about death. Cool. Anything else, Elsa, you think? Um, not that I can think of at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I think at least that attitude towards, I mean, a lot of the same topics. There's a little bit of domestic interest between both of them. The um, the poem that we did not have time to read about the uh, on wedlock and the death of children, another kind of common Anne Bradstreet theme. Um, I feel certain that he could have read Anne Bradstreet's poems. Did he or did he not? That I don't know, but he could have. And I wondered if that would be something that might bring them together. Okay, great. So we'll sign off here in just a second. <laughs> Any recommended media? Do you think there's anything, anything new that we should recommend for people to watch? Like, let's go off topic. I really don't care anymore about pro, like Puritan poets. Are you watching anything good that you think students should watch or listening to a cool podcast or reading uh, a cool book? Podcast, um, called Lore. Yeah. A while it's literally just about lore around the world yeah and I absolutely love it because I love everything that has anything to do with like ghosts or vampires or she talks about werewolves um and just like he talks about elves once in like Norway <laughs> and how they still believe in them love it it's really amazing uh how these different beliefs yeah actually i just listened to one uh about gremlins nice like don't think of the movie from the 80s because that is not what gremlins were and i was like people like uh in the second world war yeah there were uh fighter pilots who honestly believed they saw gremlins attacking their planes yeah. this is amazing as i never knew that it's I don't know. I'm just, I have interests that are a little bizarre sometimes. I love it. All right. So the lore podcast. Elsa, you got an idea? Um, I have, that reminded me of two podcasts that I listened to. Um, the first is uh, more similar to that. It's called Outliers, Stories from the Edge of History. And so it focuses on people that aren't exactly told about in history books, but still like have a fascinating history. 
And the second one is Zero Hours, um, which is a fiction anthology podcast following two immortal characters throughout time. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's real cool. Okay, great. So my related uh, recommendations, one would be Stuff You Missed in History Class, which often covers, like, especially in the October season, they do kind of more spooky things, and I think you might like it. Uh, and the other one is a local podcast called Ghoul on Ghoul, um, and it's a little mature, so I don't know, like, how you feel <laughs> about those things. Uh, they often get a little bit gross. They describe themselves as a uh, sex-positive horror comedy podcast, so it's pretty fun. <laughs> All right, that's our recommendations for the week. Thank you both so much for the great conversation. I really appreciate it, and thank you to everyone who's listening. Bye.